Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Before we start, a warning that today's episode deals with sexual assault and residential school survivors. This was a terrible place, though. That place down there on the end, there was really lots of sexual assaults happened on that end. Down, down like in the basement? Mm-hmm. Okay. Under the stairwell. Huh. So what is it? How, how do you feel right now watching? I, I the said it's door. happy in a way and sad in another. Happy it's down and gone and sad it took so long. That's Melvin Tibbet speaking to the Globe's Patrick White. They're standing in front of a burning building in northern BC, a building that used to be the Lower Post Residential School. When you drove by here, I assume every day, did it? Did you think about what what happened here? I, did, I, was, every day you think of it. I'm sorry. Yeah, that must be awful. And then you know they had the post office here. They had the band office here. So every day you think about it. The community gathered to watch the school burn down in a ceremony on September 30th, Canada's first national day for truth and reconciliation. So what? I mean, I know this is a. This, some people just laugh at me for the how broad the question is, but what is you know it's National Reconciliation Day. What does that mean to Let you? Let me tell you what reconciliation means to me. I would love to know. To me, reconciliation is saying, well, well, it happened to me, so I'm okay with it. Well, I'm not okay with it. You know. Yeah. Nor should you. You know. It's, I'm not. That's what reconciliation means to me. My personal opinion is. Um, you know, oh well, it did happen. I'm okay with it. I, 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 I feel bad about it, but I do. I'm okay, but I don't feel that way. You know. Yeah. Okay. So how how do, how do you feel? I feel. My personal feeling is how could one human being do that to the other human? Today, Globe reporter Patrick White talks about Lower Post Residential School and a trial in the 1950s that almost held a predator to account for the sexual abuse of students. This is The Decibel. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Tell us about Melvin Tibbet. Who is he? Melvin is an elder in the Lower Post First Nation, which is a Kaskadena community. The Kaskadena are a Athabascan-speaking people in the, in the northwestern part of the country. Uh, he grew up uh, as a young kid on a trap line, and then at uh, age six or so, he was forced to go to Lower Post Residential School. His first week there, he told me he thought it was heaven. He, for the first time in his life, smelled oranges, but... It eventually dawned on him after a few days that the the oranges were not for the kids, and the treatment they endured was uh, was horrible. He himself endured physical and sexual abuse at the school, and once he left the school around age seventeen, he uh, he ended up on uh, Skid Row in Vancouver, addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it was only in the in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties that he, as he said to me, started working on himself, uh, and he he managed to turn things around and and move back to Lower Post. 
Tell us about this residential school. Uh, where was it and, and, and when was it open? Well, so this residential school is just along the BC-Yukon border, about four hours from Whitehorse. And it operated from its opening in 1951 till 1975. And at its peak, it had hundreds of students going there. I think it was over 20 different communities that fed this school. So it was quite a vast swath of northern BC and also most of the Yukon as well uh, that, that fed into this school. So on the first day of school, it'd be a huge mix of languages and cultures that were all being mashed together uh, in this one school. Why did Lower Post, why did this community decide to burn down the, the old residential school that was there? The nation lacking a lot of administrative buildings and, and larger buildings turned it into an administration building. Uh, the post office occupied it and a few other local offices were stationed there for about another 45 years. And for a lot of people in that community who attended the school, this was a constant reminder of what they went through. So the a young chief they have now, Harlan Schilling, is uh, 34 years old. A number of other chiefs had tried before to get it demolished, and he managed to get it through in the last uh, couple of years. He convinced the federal government to allow him. And I told Harlan, I would really like to be there for that, to be among community members when that happens. About 24 hours before they were set to light it up, he sent me a text, he being in uh, Whitehorse at the time, I was in Toronto, saying, we are going to light the school on fire tomorrow. You're welcome to attend. And so within 24 hours, I had hopped on a plane to Vancouver and then another plane to Whitehorse and driven the four hours uh, southeast along the Alaska Highway to Lower Post to witness this. What was it like to be there? It was, there is was a real difference. Younger people who had not attended the school, they were filming it on YouTube. They were yelling, good riddance. And so for them, it was it was just an exciting development in the town. I mean, there's a it's a it's a small town, and this was a massive fire of the central building in town. So it was it was just worth something worth watching and celebrating for some of the older people in town, like uh, like Mr. Tibbet. It was a heavy moment. Patrick, how did you end up telling this particular story about this particular school? A colleague of mine at the Globe, Tanya Talego, is a national affairs columnist, had been writing extensively about the discovery of unmarked graves uh, in a number of communities across the country. And a uh, 92-year-old former Mountie reached out to her, a guy named Dave Friesen, and said that uh, back in the 1950s, he had served in a community a few kilometers away from Lower Post and had uh, conducted a pretty extensive investigation into sexual assaults at the Lower Post Residential School. And Tanya, being the dynamo she is, she didn't quite have time for it, so she passed it along to me. And at first I thought, this is an interesting little historical story that I'd like to look into. So I, I called Dave Friesen. So, I mean, if you can take us back then to the, the time, what was he investigating? What, what did he find? So Friesen started looking into a guy named Ben Guerin, who lived in town, who uh, was uh, often known to, to ferry around indigenous boys in his Plymouth station wagon. Friesen also later found out that he had a derisive nickname in town, uh, Backdoor Benny. Then it eventually 
morphed into an uh, an investigation where he interviewed upwards of 30 boys and he found just devastating stories. He heard stories of Garen's sexual abuse, eventually charged Garen with four counts of indecent assault. And uh, a trial was scheduled for uh, Prince Rupert quite a ways away in uh, late 1958. What was Garen's relationship with this residential school? Yeah, so that that's interesting. He was hired to be the boys' supervisor at the school. In January 1958, Friesen went to the school to confront the principal about Garand. And the principal of the school said, yes, we know all about what Ben Garand has been up to with the children, and that's why we let him go. During my reporting, I also uh, found some correspondence from the 1950s between uh, clergy in Whitehorse, which the Lower Post Residential School was run out of, uh, Montreal, which was kind of the, the national head office of the Oblates, which ran the school, and Rome, where church officials acknowledged what was going on at Lower Post Residential School. And not only did they acknowledge it, they did not show any sympathy for the real victims. Instead, there were passages saying that this poor brother in reference to the staff member who was abusing children in that school. And they were trying to devise ways of holding their hand out to this poor brother. And uh, eventually they decided that they would dismiss Garen from Lower Post Residential School and give him a, a new job at another town, but still within the church. But down the road, they would invite him to come back to Lower, Resident, Lower Post Residential School, despite what they knew he had done. Wow, that's, that's pretty stomach churning. Where did you find this correspondence, Patrick? So during the uh, uh, residential school settlement process that the uh, federal government engaged in, researchers with the federal government gathered up a lot of correspondence from uh, church officials. And uh, they turned that, that correspondence into what they called school narratives. And these school narratives informed how they would settle with, with different victims. I've read a lot of these narratives from different schools across the country. I'd never read anywhere else except the lower post school narrative where church officials were acknowledging and actively covering up abuse. You said there was, you know, Friesen was investigating in 57, early 58. Uh, he's ready to lay charges. Um, and then you mentioned this trial in Prince Rupert. Can you walk us through what, what happened to that trial? Well, it's only starting to become clear what happened to that trial uh, so many years later. The first of the boys was put on the stand, uh, a kid named Leo Miller. And the Crown Council began asking him, what happened when you were in the cabin with Ben Garand? And Leo Miller recanted everything. He said uh, nothing happened, and he that he was in Garen's cabin, but that nothing happened. The Crown Council then called up a number of other witnesses, and they all recanted their testimony. So the 
the trial uh, was basically annulled. The charges, uh, uh, Garand was acquitted. And uh, Corporal Friesen, who was sitting in the audience at the time, was completely deflated. He'd spent months and months interviewing uh, dozens of boys. And now his case had come crashing down. And he didn't know why. Did he ever did he ever learn what happened? Why these kids decided to 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 recant? So he only learned after I I told him. Uh, so I went to Lower Post uh, this year, uh, attended the fire that we talked about. One of my goals being up there was to try to find some of those boys who had, had been called on the stand in Prince Rupert so many years ago. Uh, a few had uh, died. I eventually found uh, one guy named Jack Chief who had been up on the stand and we talked a lot about his residential experience, residential school experience rather, uh, how horrible it had been. And then I, I brought up the, the trial and what had happened. He said that a few days before they made the trip to Prince Rupert, that he had been visited by a man who told him to, quote, shut it down. He said, don't say a thing or you could be killed. So he'd received a death threat. And this was, he was a kid at the time. He was a, he was a young teenager receiving a death threat before trial. And uh, he, his only guess is that all the boys, all the witnesses had received the same death threat. And that's why they all recanted. Do we, do we have any sense of who that was? Jack knows. He knows who it was. And he said it is a secret he will take to his grave. The only clues he would he would provide, he said it was somebody associated with Lower Post Residential School. So while this investigation was happening in the 50s, uh, can we look a bit more broadly about what the RCMP's role was at the time, uh, their role in their relationship with these communities and with residential schools? Yeah, well, that's relatively easy to do because in 2011, the RCMP itself delivered a massive report on its role in the residential school system. So any children who ran away from school, it was the job of individual Mounties to go and round up those kids and bring them back. It was also their job to find children to attend school. And a number of people in town told me that in the lower post area, it was Mounties who came to their families in the first place and said, you either send your child to lower post residential school or you're going to jail. One name for the police they said was used to be common was translated from the Casca language to English as takers of children. So they had this real enforcement role. And uh, so in this report, this is what got me extremely interested about this story because reading this report, it, it just details how the Mounties were involved. It then has a section on how the Mounties investigated wrongdoing at these schools. And there's a passage that says the researchers on this report were unable to find a single example of Mounties investigating uh, physical or sexual assault at a school based on community complaints until about the 1980s, except for one occasion. And the report said there was one investigation back in 19, starting in 1957 at Lower Post Residential School, where a Mountie in that town charged a former employee of Lower Post Residential School. And reading this, I almost fell off my chair. I, I remember distinctly reading it and saying, 
that's Dave. That's Dave Friesen. That's that's when I got truly excited about the story because his investigation was truly uh, a one-off. Okay, so after this period of the the investigation and the trial, what happened to the school in Lower Post after the 1950s? Well, it's pretty sad because despite school officials, despite the RCMP, despite church officials knowing exactly what had gone on with Ben Garand at that school, it continued to operate uh, without, it seems, much supervision of the people working there. There was a man named uh, George Mazinski who started working there in the late 50s, and he was an absolute sexual predator. Uh, there, There was rampant sexual abuse at the school during his time there. And again, he was allowed to go from Lower Post and work at other residential schools. This is why another reason I really wanted to investigate this story is because they didn't properly investigate Garen, because his abuses were were uh, simply uh, hidden away and excused in a way, I believe that it paved the way for more sexual abuse and more at that school and for more lives to be ruined. Okay, so so let's let's talk about the the burning of the school again. What will replace the school now? So the federal government has uh, committed more than ten million dollars to uh, to build a new center that would be band administration. There'd be a sewing room for elders, uh, kind of a multifunctional uh, building. They did so at the urging of Premier John Horgan, who's taken a special interest in Lower Post. That's in the works. The drawings are done. It will not be on the exact site of this building. They still have not decided entirely what's going to go there. As I left, it was it was just kind of a, a black hole, and people in the community just hope that, that they can fill it with something more hopeful. The chief, Harlan Schilling, does have some other ideas, uh, though he would like to build a cultural revitalization center down the road. And he his idea is that it will undo everything that the residential school did to the community. So, Patrick, we've been talking here about this one residential school where, where children were abused. But, of course, this was not the only place where this happened. I guess by talking, though, about this one situation, what can this tell us about the bigger picture of, of this system of, of residential schools? Yeah, I feel we're always talking and, and writing about the, the residential school system. I feel that it becomes kind of hazy to talk about it when you when you talk about it just as a system. But when you drill down to a single school and, and talk to the people in specific settings trying to battle the system, it becomes much clearer to me, at least, how these institutions affected the individuals who, who attended them. Often these were very large institutions stationed in very small towns. And I felt another thing about Lower Post is it is it really showed there were hundreds of students that went to this school. Lower Post itself only has a couple hundred people in it. So you can imagine a school like this operating over a number of years. The amount of trauma that it brings to a town would take years and years to overcome. And I felt that this story really showed this too, how a single school can really thwart the future of a town for, for a long time. Yeah, and now at least some of the public is... Does it, 
there's a there's a benefit to the some of the public at least acknowledging that. Yep, some do. Most don't. A lot of people will tell me. You know, I went to two residential school trauma treatments. I went to two because I knew I had to. And um, the first one I went to, I thought I left a little bit out. I thought I left just a little out. And I came home and I told my wife, Debbie, I said, I left a little bit out. Well, I went back the second time. Well, that little bit was the main part of it, the sexual abuse. And you learn to talk about it because you talk about it, you feel. And then a lot of people always say, well, why don't you just get over it? Well, I tell them, you know, if you've been through what I've been through, you won't just get over it. Before we go, an update on another story we've been following about the fuel contamination in Iqaluit's water supply. In October, we spoke to Globe reporter Willow Fiddler. We're coming close to the end of October now. I've seen reports, you know, that the river in Iqaluit is starting to freeze. You know, once you get into the winter months, you kind of run into the risk of, of other complications happening with freezing water and freezing pipes that can cause, you know, further damage to the infrastructure. And the priority, I think, is making sure they get the contaminants out and lifting the boil water advisory, which sounds like may happen by the end mm-hmm. of the week. But... It didn't happen by the end of the week. In fact, Iqaluit has now gone nearly two months without clean tap water. The military has set up a purification center where people can pick up water, but there's still no timeline for when tap water in the city will be drinkable again. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Tim and Johnson is our intern. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby is our editor. Kyle Fulton mixed this episode. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Patrick White. You can find more of his work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at RW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>